I was just looking at the, uh, at the uh, questions online. I, I, some of them are here, but I was uh, just flipping through Twitter back there. And here's one that, that gives me a chance to just make a principle clear that is so, so crucial. Peter says to make your election sure. So that's 2 Peter 1.10. Make your calling and election sure. So he's quoting that verse. Peter says, make your election sure. If it's irresistible, excuse me, if it's irresistible grace, why do I need to make my election sure? Very good question. And um, not a hard question to answer. If, if you have categories in your mind like this, God always uses means to bring about the ends that he has. And one of the ends that he has is that his elect ones will persevere to the end and be saved forever. Nobody will be lost. We'll get to that later, but now the principle is this. The means he uses are many. Prayer, reading the scriptures and meditating, or this effort here in 2 Peter, make your election sure. That doesn't mean it is uncertain in God's mind if you're going to make it. It means he uses your focused effort to preserve you. So God is always telling us to use means towards certain ends. And a lot of people, they say, well, if the end is certain, why do you need to use means? Because God has set it up that way. That's why. You might say, I want, I want to put a nail here, and I want that nail to be driven flush with this wood, which would be a shame, but that's the way the illustration goes. So I got it here. And God has fully and totally predestined that the nail be in the wood and flush. And therefore you say, well, I don't need to hit it with a hammer then. No, you do need to hit it with the hammer. That's the way he intends for the nail to be flush with the wood. Hit it five or six times with the hammer. Same with evangelism. Say, well, if he's predestined people to be saved, why do you need to tell them about the gospel? Because that's the way he's designed. You know, if God's going to make me live until I'm 60, I don't need to go to bed at night. <clears throat> I don't need any sleep. He's designed for me to be 60 years old. Don't sleep. Well, that's just stupid. No. <laughs> go to bed. God has ordained that sleep gets you to be 60. And eat too. There's the principle. Means are ordained to bring about ordained ends. And therefore, humble, submissive Christians follow the means as well as pursuing and hoping in the ends. Now, the question we ended with, um, before we look to more questions here, I want to wrap total depravity up with this. Um, if we are unable, as dead people, to believe, how can we be held responsible to believe? Because we are held responsible to believe. We will be blameworthy, guilty, if we don't believe and we cannot believe. 
The distinction between moral inability and natural inability or physical inability is important for grasping all that the Bible says, has to say, about human accountability and God's sovereignty. Jonathan Edwards defines the terms for us. So I'm going to define the difference between natural or physical inability and moral or spiritual inability. Because this is the one you don't have, and you do have this, and because you do have this, you are responsible. Not having this does not remove your responsibility, it just removes your ability. But it's a certain kind of ability that leaves your responsibility intact. So this is important. Listen carefully. This requires some thinking. We are said to be naturally unable to do a thing when we cannot do it if we will. Now I could just stop right there because that's the key sentence. Natural inability is when you want sincerely to do a thing and you would do it and you are being physically kept from doing it. So if you put chains around my hands here and chains around my feet and bolted me to the door and I couldn't move and then you said jump off the stage and I would say I would if I could. I'm not responsible to jump off the stage. God's not going to hold me accountable for jumping off the stage. When we cannot do it if we will. So the will at that point is still willing and, and the accomplishment of the act is being restrained. Because what is most commonly called nature does not allow it. Or because some impeding defect or obstacle that is extrinsic to the will either of the faculty of understanding, which is why I think babies go to heaven, or the constitution of the body, or external objects like chains. Now that's physical inability. Got that? Physical inability is the inability to carry out a volition when the volition, the will, is really there. Moral inability consists not in any of these things, but either in the lack of inclination or the strength of a contrary inclination, will, or the lack of sufficient motives in view to induce and excite the act of will, or the strength of apparent which is why, Paul, by the way, lack of sufficient motives in view to induce or excite. This is why Paul said in Romans 1, therefore they are without excuse because they have seen the things in nature that should induce them to worship and acknowledge and submit to God. But they don't. They suppress the truth, even though there's ample motives there. Or the strength of an apparent motive to the contrary. 
or both these may be resolved into one, and it may be said, in one word, that moral inability consists in the opposition of want or inclination. So here, in natural inability, you have a true, good, and right inclination and will and are prevented externally or physically from carrying it out. And here you lack the inclination and you lack the desire and the will and therefore you can't move towards Christ or embrace Christ. If you lack this, you are still responsible. Because you don't want to. And if you want to and are prevented, then you aren't responsible for doing the thing. That's the distinction that Edwards makes. Um, I'm just going to pause and let that sink in a minute. See if there's... We'll take questions on it in a minute if any, any show up. See if I can find another way to say it because it's so, it's so important. We are responsible for not wanting to believe the gospel. Even if that wanting of something else is so strong, we can't want to. Because the reason for the not wanting to is our own corruption. And we're guilty for that corruption. It's not that there's something outside of us that has restrained our ability to follow through. We ourselves are in love with sin. And we're so in love with sin, we cannot love Jesus. You can't, for example, if you walk up to somebody who has zero desire for Jesus, zero desire for the Bible, for church, just totally in the world and loving the world, and you say to them, well, right now, start loving him. Start delighting in him. Start enjoying him. Start seeing him as a treasure. They can't. But the can't is not something you're doing or, or, or something external to them. It's that their heart just loves the opposite. Loves it so much that they can't. And that heart has to be taken out, and a new heart has to be put in, and therefore God alone can turn that around. A fifth statement on totally, total depravity. Our rebellion is totally deserving, therefore, of eternal punishment. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, including the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. So we too, before we were saved, and all the rest are children of wrath. That's everybody. So apart from conversion, to be a child of wrath, I think means to be um, worthy of wrath by nature. That's in your DNA, so to speak. I deserve wrath by nature. 2 Thessalonians 1, God will deal out retribution to those who do not know God, 
to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So that's what's coming. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So summary and conclusion of total depravity. In summary, total depravity means that we are all by nature corrupt, apart from God's irresistible grace, our hardness and rebellion against God is total. Apart from God's irresistible grace. If right now you are feeling less rebellious and less hard towards God, that means God is at work in this room. doesn't mean you suddenly become smart by nature. You, you are smarter when you believe the truth, but God was the giver. Everything we do in this rebellion is tainted and thus sin. I was thinking back there between session, again, about my, my car washing illustration of how Karsten was doing the technically right thing. I told him to wash the car, he's washing the car. And he's doing it in an attitude of anger and rebellion and spite and not loving me at all in doing this. He's mm, like that. The reason... I mean, I, I was imagining myself back here on a secular talk show on TV. And, and they say, now you're, you're one of those Calvinists. Yeah. And I've heard, this is a, a stunned secular talk show host. I don't even know who it would be. Um, I never watched these things. But I'm just imagining myself there. He said, I've heard that you think everything I do is sin. Because I'm not a believer. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in anything except um, the American way and my, my ability to make progress in it and, and to let, let people do their own thing. That's what I believe in. And you, you think that everything I believe, everything I do is, is sin. Is that right? Is that what you believe? Now, at that moment, I could say yes, period. Or I could say, and I think I would, I would say, yes, can I give you an illustration that might help you make sense? How do I see that? I'd probably say, yeah, go ahead, try. See what you can do. And then I would tell him my story. But that story would only make sense if you saw that the most important reality that decides the virtue of an act is God. You see? For him... To build a hospital, to find a cure for AIDS, um, to, to, to fight human trafficking, those are all goods per se because they make life a little better for people. And, and they do. And, and in that sense, at the purely horizontal level, we call them good. 
And I wouldn't even go on a crusade to stop using the word good that way. But I would say, but, but you're leaving out the most important reality in the universe, namely God, who holds you in being every millisecond of every day and will decide your destiny. He's, and you don't even do anything. And so everything you do, you do without reference to God. And therefore you snub God. And therefore every activity you're doing is a snubbing of your maker. And that's evil. Now, at that point, he's either going to catch on to why I would talk that way or, or not. And it will, it will depend on the place that God has in his worldview. Okay. How does it help us know, to, how does it help us to know the doctrine of total depravity? So these are my final so what questions. And we've spent an hour, an hour or so or more on total depravity two hours almost, and so what? If you believe the last hour's worth of texts, the way I have tried to present them, what difference would it make? And so here's, here's my effort to draw out some implications. There is no full grasping of God's saving work, forgiving, justifying, renovating, perfecting, without seeing our true condition. You just don't know what it means to be saved if you don't know what it means to be lost. My dad, who has led more people to Jesus in his lifetime, from darkness to light, from hell to heaven, from blindness to seeing, from unbelief to belief, than I'll ever blink at, I think. I admired him so much in his evangelistic commitments. to, And he said to me, Johnny, it's so much harder to get people lost than it is to get them saved. And he just meant, until people see how unbelievably corrupt they are, they won't love and need Jesus the way he gives himself. He offers himself freely to sinners. I did not come to call the righteous to repentance. I came to call the sinner, the sick. It's not the, the, the well who need a physician. It's the sick who need a physician. And if you don't think you're sick, the, phys you, the physician knocks at the door and says, anybody need me here? Says, no, we're totally fine. Thank you. You can go down the street. There's nobody sick in this house. Oh, I thought maybe you would know you're all mortally sick. So it's very hard to persuade classy, slick, cool American human beings that they are mortally wounded and desperate need of a Savior. So it works the other way too. Once you see it, the Savior and all His work becomes exquisitely precious. So you just can't you can't know what it means to be saved until you know what it means to be lost. Second, we can't embrace Christ as Savior without knowing our need for one. Thus, saving faith depends on knowing our sinfulness. I guess I collapsed those two into one. Number three, knowing our depravity and our ongoing indwelling sin as believers, and those are the texts that refer to indwelling sin in believers, Knowing our depravity deepens our humility, which sweetens and strengthens 
all our significant relationships, marriage, parenting, and evangelism. Now, I thought a lot about that sentence because this is where the rubber meets the road for me more often than any other place, right? I live at home a lot. I live at church some. I live in the neighborhood some. I live in the, the civil entity called America some, but I live at home a lot. And there's for all my sanctification is tested at home. And you, you may not have a family. You may be single and live by yourself, but you got an inner ring of people that you hang with most, and that's what it is for you. And I'm saying, um, knowing our depravity deepens our humility. And that has these two effects, sweetening and strengthening. And I'm, I have a meaning for those two words in these relationships, marriage, parenting, evangelism, meaning people you meet at the office or anywhere. And you could add the list to their friendships, colleagues, any relationship that is significant to you, I'm going to argue the doctrine of your depravity will sweeten it and strengthen it. This is assuming that we're going to get to the gospel, the atonement, which is coming very soon. And the way it works is um, wherever my pride is, is, is holding sway, it kills most sweet affections. I want affections between Noel and me and between my children to be sweet, tender, warm, kind, affirming, loving. I just want there to be such a natural, sweet give and take. I don't want there to be anger and bitterness and resentment and suspicion and distrust and moodiness and glumness and discouragement. I just don't want it. I got enough of that elsewhere. I don't want that at home. You know, and, and I know that if I could be as humble as my depravity says I should be, it would make everything sweeter. Because I wouldn't give my back up so much. Right? I, I wouldn't be so demanding Demandingness is a great killer of affections. I wouldn't be so quick to judge. I wouldn't be so quick to, to be spiteful or correcting or when things going better my way. It would just be a, a sense of increased gratitude like we began with, began with that poem last night. I would see evidences of God's grace in my life and, and our life as a family and kindnesses and goodness everywhere in my life instead of spotting the shortcomings and the flaws everywhere and, and collecting all of those and then using those to just promote my pride. And that's the way it works for John Piper. For me to stay constantly apprised of my deadness and brokenness and, and, and corruption and arrogance and pride and rebellion without Jesus is a great sweetener. And what I mean by strengthener is we've been married 44 years. That means that the, the metal of this relationship has been tested a lot.
pride walks away. Okay, I'm out of here then. You have it your way. I mean, that's the way pride talks. My way? I'm not going to deal with this anymore. I'm gonna, she could do that. I could do that. Kids could do that. We could all just walk away because things aren't going my way and I've just had enough working on this. It's not what I signed up for. Humility says, I'm going to walk away. Why, why should I think I signed up for anything except hell? If I'm not in hell, it's a good day. Seriously? If you believe you should be there? If you get up every morning and say, my native, I'm, a, I'm by nature a child of wrath. And I'm not there. I'm in a warm bed. Well, you need to do these little exercises. Or imagine yourself being blind. And you woke up this morning and, ah, I can see! I can see! First time in 67 years. Only you've had it for 67 years. You've been seeing for 67 years. I mean, there might be a blind person here, but you, you know what I'm talking about. But only, only a sense of our true depravity can work to strengthen and keep us where we ought to, to be. And, and the fourth one, knowing the depths of corruption of human nature and of God's sovereignty keeps us from being knocked off balance by bad news and dire predictions. Does anything surprise you in this world? It doesn't need to. Not if you have a good theology of human depravity. When they hand out condoms on Valentine's Day to 8th graders, does that surprise you? Well, probably. But now, I mean, you, you have an explanation for that. And a thousand other sorrows and absurdities in our world. I, I want us to be a stable people, we Christians. Strong, not, oh, oh, look what's happening. Oh, you'll never be, you'll never be to be like that. Because you know this is the way human beings are. And we have lots to say now in the face of it. So I think that's the end of total depravity. Let me go to some questions here. And, and then we'll switch into unconditional election. Regarding total depravity, what does it mean when the Bible says man is created in the image of God? Do non-believers still bear this image? Non-believers still do bear that image. And that image is the capacity to reflect the glory of God intentionally. Be my short, short term. You know, people say, is, is the image of God that we can think differently than the animals and feel differently than the animals and relate to others differently and all the things that might separate us more or less from other created beings. And, and I think the simplest way to talk about the meaning of the image of God is to say, to be in the image of God means 
to be one who is designed to image him. To be in his image is to image him. The reason God made seven billion images of himself is because he wanted himself to be reflected in the world. If you put seven billion images of yourself in a, in a village, the point would be clear. You want yourself to be exalted. That's, God, that's why God put seven billion images of himself on the planet. He means, the planet is about me! It's about me! And total depravity takes that mirror, here's my picture anyway, so the mirror is to, to be at a 45 degree angle, this is, the, this is the good side of the mirror, this is the black side, it doesn't show anything, and God is, his glory is hitting this, it's coming off at a 90 degree angle, and it's, it's going out and showing the world God. That's what it means to be created in his image. We are designed with capacities to do that through loving him and delighting in him and trusting him. God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. So we are created to be satisfied with God and thus reflect his satisfactory beauty out here. That he's an all-satisfying, wise, good, powerful friend and father. And what we did in the fall was, was flip over like this. The light of God's glory hits us. What's created on the ground here is a shadow in the shape of a human being. And we fell in love with that. And we've been killing ourselves ever since. Living for the glory of God. I mean, for our own glory. Loving the shadow of God's God's glory or ourselves with God's glory around it forever. So, yes, we're still in the image of God in that we were made with the capacity to do what no other beings, no other created beings can do, namely be thankful and trusting and treasuring of God and thus reflect his glory and we have now renounced all of that and the capacity for that remains in our nature, our brain and our heart, our soul, but we have now squandered it all so that it is totally corrupt. 17. What then, that's the number of the question here, what, when it comes to total depravity we talk about a sinner being dead how do we understand deadness if the Bible speaks of active rebellion? I understand deadness as the complete imperviousness to spiritual beauty in Christ or in God. That is, um, God is like a, a needle of glory and here you are and you're very actively doing stuff. You look very much alive. And he pricks you with his glory, his beauty. You don't feel it at all. It's dead. You're, you're numb. So deadness doesn't mean you can't get up in the morning. Deadness doesn't mean you can't uh, write a, a poem or a novel. It means that when it comes to spiritual reality, you're blind to it and you're in. The word impervious doesn't sound quite right. What word am I groping for? You, insensible of it. You can't feel it. You're dead to spiritual reality. It always looked like something that it's not. It always feels like something that it's not. And so in that sense, the, the image of deadness 
is what works. It don't, don't overstate deadness so that you can't move or think or feel. You are moving and thinking and feeling and you're all doing it without the Holy Spirit in utter obliviousness to the supreme value of God. Is it a true statement to say that as a regenerate, justified believer, that in my flesh, I still sin continuously? Um, that's a very, very good question. And I want to be very careful. If, if the question means in the same way I did before I was saved, the answer is clearly no. You have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is bearing fruits of the Holy Spirit. Those fruits of the Holy Spirit are beautiful in the eyes of God, and He delights in your obedience. You can please God. Unbelievers can't. You can please God. The Bible says, try to please God. Seek to please God. It speaks of pleasing God often. And I mean something beyond justification with God looking upon us as perfect in Christ, which He always does. I mean within that sphere of total acceptance because of Jesus, we start living the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I worked harder than any of them. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. And when God looked on that hard work, He said, I like that because it's depending on my grace. What turns behavior into something beautiful to God, non-sin, is that it's done in reliance upon God and for the glory of God and in conformity to God's direction. And that's beautiful. Now, that's my main answer to encourage you that you don't have to go to bed every night saying, I didn't please God at all today. And I don't even think it's possible for me to please God because there's remaining sin in me. So having said that, I, I'm not sure whether the question might also mean, is everything we do a little bit imperfect? And to that I would say, yes it is. And therefore in a sense you're always sinning. That could be really discouraging. I don't want to discourage you. I don't want you to take that and run with it because some of you are depressed already and, uh, and you're wired to have a certain personality that's looking for the worst news possible and, and you collect all the bad news and walk out of here and make life worse for you and, and, and others of you are so wired to be positive you don't hear anything bad news and you walk out of here and, and only feel things positive and I just like to do un undo all that wiring and see if the Holy Spirit would rewire you. But I, I am going to say that I agree with the Puritan who wrote I've never done a good deed for which I don't have to repent. <laughs> what that does for me is make me love the cross more. It doesn't make me more depressed. That is why I want to go to heaven. I'd like that to be over. All I mean by that is, I'm so aware of my selfishness and my pride and my twisted desires that if I, if I preach a sermon or teach this course or buy my wife a gift or write her a poem, there's this little voice in, in my, my mind that always says, you just wanted to get some praise for that. And you just wanted to be whatever, you know, pick a bad motive, the one that you struggle with. And the little voice says that and you say, I'm trying not to. I, I mean, I don't, as, much as, as much as I know, I don't want that to be true. 
but maybe it's true. <laughs> I don't know. The human heart is corrupt, and who can know it? So I come to the end of the day not trying to sort that out. I mean, I just think you'll go crazy. You just go crazy if you try to sort that out and try to say, yeah, here was my, here was my good act, my bad act, good act, bad act, good act, bad act, and I, I repent of the bad ones, got forgiveness, God is pleased with the good ones, hooray. It's just, life is not like that. <laughs> They're all mixed. They're all mixed. And some you feel better about, and some you feel less good about, and you come to the end of the day, wife by your side, all by yourself, however you do it, and you say, God, we love the cross. We love the blood of Jesus. We love your forgiveness. We love the fact that justification is by faith alone apart from works of the law. We love the fact that there's ongoing, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Every little piece of contamination in all those good deeds that you had, he'll cleanse it away and he will only count what is beautiful and good. He'll put it in a, in a filing cabinet. I do think God will judge us that way someday. Just see if this helps. So God is writing down all your deeds all day long. Or he's got a scribe, somebody, he doesn't have to worry about it. So every, every deed is written in a book. Good deeds, bad deeds. And they're so perceptive, they know exactly how to grade every deed. Like 80%, 90%, 60% righteous, corrupt. You know? Just, and they're all, they're all in a file. Okay? And you're going to stand before the judge and the filing cabinets, you know, a mile-long filing cabinet is going to come out with every, every idle word written down. It says so. You'll be judged for every idle word. Pretty spooky. Pretty scary. Because none of us, if those had to be put in a balance, would be saved, right? But what God does is he takes all the... It's just a guess now. He takes all the folders and pulls out all the grades that are, say, B minus and higher. All right? Just pull them out. And if, for, for the thief on the cross, that was a pretty small file. His file was a mile long, and 99.9% .9 of it was bad deeds. And, and there were maybe two good deeds at the end. Remember? He said to the guy next to him, what, what are you criticizing Jesus for? We deserve to be here, and he doesn't. <laughs> Write that one down. Evidence of new birth. Right there. Okay? But that's all he's got. He's got two evidences. And, and the other one was, remember me when you come into your kingdom, please. Write that one down. Okay, now you've got two and ten million. All right? So that's why the balances don't work. If you're going to be saved by your works, he's gone. But Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So works don't save that guy. But he's got two good works. And let's take him as the paradigm. So at the judgment day, he's standing there before Jesus at the judgment day to be judged for his works. Judgment according to works. And the Lord opens his file, and the Lord's got long arms, and he takes all the, the, the F files, and, and all of his are F, except for the last half hour of his life. And he takes them, and he throws them in the garbage and puts a match to them. So I covered those. Let's cover those up. Burn those up. And then he takes these two and he says, these are of such a nature as to give evidence that you trusted my son and are therefore in my son and therefore saved and forgiven and loved forever. And I will reward you now for these two works as evidence of your faith in my son by whom you are saved. That's the way I think it 
works. And I'm sure those two, two deeds weren't perfect. I mean, the man's been a thief all his life long. He doesn't suddenly become a saint on the cross, a saint in the perfection sense, but in a, another sense. So that's my way too long answer to that question of do we sin continuously? No, if you mean all we do is sin. Yes, if you mean there remains corruption in any of our good deeds, and that does not make them worthless. One or two more. Jesus was fully man, fully God. Did he have the ability to sin? I hope now, I mean, what I would do if this were a course, and I were teaching for credit, I would put on the final exam that question. Discuss that question. And I would expect you to do what? To go back to natural ability and inability and describe in your blue book um, there are two ways to talk about the ability and the inability of Jesus. He was spiritually unable to sin because he was so good he could not help but see the good as desirable. But he had the natural capacity to sin. His brain was able to make sinful decisions. Naturally, he could have thought through a way to steal. Could have thought through a way to have sex. She never did, by the way. Should be real encouraging to single people to be chaste. You can be the fullest and greatest human being that ever lived and never have sexual intercourse. He could have done all that. So he's, he can sin and he can't sin. Can't morally, can naturally. And the reason he didn't sin is because he was so good. Not because God was kind of holding him back. You want to sin? I'm going to let you sin. Jesus goes, I want to sin. I want to sin. Let me go. That's just totally not the way to think about his inability to sin. His inability to sin is that in here is a flawless heart that sees every act of obedience as the most attractive way to live. Thus, he's the freest of all men and the best of all men, doing exactly what he chooses to do. One more. Do you model a prayer? Can, could you model a prayer on how to pray for friends and family who are still slaves of sin? Oh, my, that's a good question. And uh, yes, I can, and I've got six of them in my notes. So that's coming. How do you pray now if you believe in irresistible grace and total depravity? How do you pray for totally depraved sinners in view of his irresistible grace? And I'll just give you the answer in 30 seconds before we get there, because we'll spend maybe five minutes on it when we get there. We, of all people, that is, we lovers of sovereign grace, should be the most prayerful of all people. Because we believe in a God who can actually penetrate through the hardest heart and change it. I don't know how Arminians pray. I don't know. Everybody I hear pray, prays like a Calvinist. That is, they ask God to change people. So, a typical prayer would be, oh God, Jim is so dead set against you. Would you be pleased sovereignly to reach down, 
by your word through the Bible or through some testimony and take out his heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh and open his blind eyes and raise him from the dead and cause him to see Jesus as irresistibly attractive in Jesus' great name to the God for whom nothing is impossible, I pray, amen. Okay, unconditional election. And we're going till 12. So we've got 35 minutes, then we're going to have lunch break for 90 minutes, and then, Lord willing, we'll see if it all fits. The meaning of unconditional election from the Bethlehem Elder Affirmation of Faith, section 3.1. We believe that God from all eternity, in order to display the full extent of his glory for the eternal and ever-increasing enjoyment of all who love him, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his will freely and unchangeably ordain and foreknow whatever comes to pass. We believe that God upholds <coughs> and governs all things from galaxies to subatomic particles, from the forces of nature to the movements of nations, from the public plans of politicians to the secret acts of solitary persons, all in accord with his eternal, all-wise purposes to glorify himself, yet in such a way that he never sins, nor ever condemns a person unjustly, but that his ordaining and governing all things is compatible with the moral accountability of all persons created in his image. Here it comes now. We believe that God's election is an unconditional act of free grace which was given through His Son, Christ Jesus, before the world began. By this act, God chose before the foundation of the world those who would be delivered from bondage to sin and brought to repentance and saving faith in His Son, Christ Jesus. So, an act of free grace through Jesus before the world began, a choosing people who would be delivered from bondage to sin. Very important. I'm taking a position there, we, this is an elder affirmation of faith, are taking a position there that when God chooses, He is choosing to rescue from rebellion, from sin. In other words, in His mind's eye, we're sinners as He does that. Which means nobody deserves that, that act. He could let us all go and He would be perfectly just. Not to save anybody. Therefore, every single act of election is grace, undeserved. Because he's picturing us as what we really are sinners. And brought to repentance, saving faith in his son. Now let's let's look at Bible. Well, here's the here's the classic Arminian position. Namely, there is election, and it's based on God's foreknowledge of our 
self-wrought faith. God purposes, this is a quote from Arminius himself, God purposes to save particular persons and to damn others, which decree rests upon the foreknowledge of God by which he has known from eternity which persons should believe. So God elects, but as he looks, he's basing his election upon that person will believe, and that person will believe, and that person, and that's why I'm choosing them. Because I see that they will believe. And, and implicit is the assumption that they have come to faith decisively on their own. He has given them provenient grace to make that possible. But they have made the choice, and he sees they're going to make that choice. Whereas the Calvinist says, oh, of course, all the elect are believers, but it's because of the election that they will become believers, not because of the faith that they become elect. So there's the difference. And be careful that you don't say what Arminians don't believe, namely that there's no election. There is. It's just not unconditional. It's conditioned upon foreknown faith and which should persevere. So he also foreknows from eternity who should believe and who should persevere because Armenians believe that you can start in faith, be saved, and lose it. And those people are not elect. If you lose your faith, you'll go in and out of election in the Armenian scheme. In the Armenian way of thinking, you're elect, and you're elect on the basis of God foreseeing your first act of faith and all your subsequent acts of faith, and the people that will persevere in faith are chosen to be elect. So that's the difference between the two, the two views. A contemporary Armenian emphasis. So today, if you ask, okay, how, how, what are the best defenses today Archie Foster and Marston say, the point is that election, the election of the church is a corporate rather than an individual thing. That's the most common argument today. To get into a theological argument with people who've studied and, and been persuaded by an Armenian position, they would say e election is basically a corporate thing. God elects a, a church and you decide if you'll be a member of the church. So he's not looking individually out there and saying, you get to be mine, you get to be mine, you get to be mine. He's saying, I'm choosing a body of people, my bride, and I elect my bride, and I define my bride as believers in my son. Now, if you want to be a part of that, you can. And you will be the decisive cause of whether you're in that. And if you decide to follow Jesus, you're in it and thus spoken of as elect. It is not that individuals are in the church because they are elect. It is rather that they are elect because they are in the church, which is the body of the elect one. That's a quote from Forster and Marston from, what, 50 years, 40 years ago now. Election is a corporate category and not oriented on the choice of individuals. This is Clark Pinnock, who just passed away a couple of years ago. Clark Pinnock. 
election speaks of a class of people rather than specific individuals. So those are two representative Armenians and the way they think today about election. Namely, it's a corporate thing, not an individual thing. So you don't ever have to give an account for why God would choose one person over another person. He doesn't. He chooses a church, a corporate entity, and then those people decide whether they'll be in it or not. And here's the main text used to support corporate election. Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. So he chose us in him. And they would say what that means is Christ is the elect one. And if you choose to be in Christ, you're part of the elect one. He's the chosen one. He's referred to that way in 1 Peter um, 1. And you then, by your free will and act of faith, unite to Christ and thus are part of the elect one and thus are elect corporately in him. Now, I've got about eight pages of text to show that doesn't work. That way of thinking just won't work. You, you cannot um, make that sustain, sustain that as you read the New Testament. And uh, so up at the top I've got these text used to support corporate and, and it should start reading individual from here on the eight pages and we've got that, that word in the wrong place. Ephesians 2. So you've got chapter 1. We are chosen before the foundation of the world in Him. Does in Him mean not individually but corporately as we individually put ourselves in Him? Is that what it means? I just don't think that what, that's what it means at all. I think chosen in him means chosen in relation to him so that nobody is chosen apart from God's foreseeing our relationship with him. But it doesn't have anything to say about whether they are chosen individually or not to be put in relationship to him. That's just not even addressed in Ephesians 1, but it is addressed in Ephesians 2, which we've seen already. God being rich in mercy mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith that not of yourselves not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, that unit of Scripture coming after the election in chapter 1 sheds a lot of light back on how to understand election before the foundation of the world. Because if we're elect in Christ and through His redeeming work, as verse 7 says, then that redeeming work includes the purchase of my conversion, and my conversion here is described as raising me from the dead by a great love. 
In love, he, chapter 1, verse 5, in love he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son through Jesus Christ. Here is an expression of that great love, and that great love is a raising of us from the dead. Now that is totally individual. My deadness is my deadness, not your deadness. If God comes to me and says, if I leave you the way you are, you will perish. If I raise you from the dead, you'll be mine. So in my great love, which is an individual and personal love, it's not general love that he has for everybody, because otherwise he'd raise everybody from the dead. In my great love for you, I now overcome your deadness, overcome your spiritual indifference and your blindness, and I raise you from the dead and give you life so that now you see Jesus as beautiful, embrace him as Savior, and thus prove to be my elect. God, I mean, the picture here is just totally different than the Arminian picture of God is going to elect um, an unspecified number, and now he will, will give prevenient grace to the world, and then he will let everybody decide uh, who's in and who's out. That's just not what's going on in chapter 2. He's deciding who to raise from the dead because they have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Here's another one. Consider your calling, brothers. This is what we're doing right now. This, I'm, I'm trying to obey with you this text. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. So the picture is there's um, not wise, not powerful, not of noble birth. So God's looking down at Corinth, the city of Corinth, and there's foolish people, and weak people, and low-class people, and God is saying, I choose you, and I choose you, and I choose you. This is, this is not corporate election going on here. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to naught the things that are. And here's his two big purposes, these two so that's. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God who, came, who became to us, I'm sorry, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, ek autu, from him, you are in Christ Jesus. Now, nothing, Amy, that's an overstatement. Well, I'll say it anyway. Nothing could be clearer than that this text is addressing why you are in Christ or why you aren't. From him are you in Christ Jesus. You didn't put yourself in Christ Jesus ultimately. God grafted you into Christ Jesus by awakening your faith and raising you from the dead and attaching you to his son. From him are you in Christ Jesus and thus he became your wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that 
as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the first so that is that you might not boast before men. And the second so that, that's a two. So good with my fingers. The second so that is that you would boast in the Lord. So I think that whole paragraph, you decide, is designed precisely to show that every one of us should consider our calling and realize there was nothing in me to commend me to God and he chose me freely so that I wouldn't boast in myself or people and I would boast in him and his grace. Not corporate, but individual. Romans eleven two through 7. Do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed the prophets, they've torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I, you're wrong, you're wrong, Elijah. I have kept for myself, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there is also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice, that is, according to election, according to the election of grace is the literal translation. So you thought you were the only one left? I've got 7,000. How do I have them? I kept them for myself. I didn't let them apostatize like the others. So similarly, there is in the present time a remnant which also accords with God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel was seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. The rest were hardened. If you are in the remnant, you were chosen to be in the remnant. Is that what it says? Am I being faithful here? What then? What Israel was seeking, it has not obtained. Most are, are not righteous. Most are not fulfilling the law. Most are not embracing the Messiah. They didn't attain what they sought. But those who were chosen, they did. It's just the opposite from what the Arminian says. The Arminian says, if you choose to be in, you're elect. And Paul says, if you're elect, that's how you got in. The elect obtained it. Acts 13, 48, similarly, Paul preaching. When the Gentiles heard this, this message about the Gentiles and God's pursuit of the nations, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. 
Just the opposite from the Arminian scheme. If you were appointed by election to eternal life, you believed. It's not like God watched you produce your belief and then said, oh, then must, you must be one of the ones who are in. John 17, 6 through 9. Do we belong to God because we come to Jesus? Or do we come to Jesus because we belong to God? I have manifested your name to the men you gave me. You gave me out of the world. God gave a group to Jesus. They were yours. And you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. But of those whom you gave me. For they are yours. Isn't Jesus amazing to talk like this? I am praying for my own people. How did they get to be my people? They were yours. I think that's his way of saying, you, you chose them, they're yours. And then you gave them to me. Nobody comes to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. John six sixty five. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Because the Father has a people, he's chosen them, and he gives them now to the Son. You did not choose me, I chose you, he said to his, his 12. So the reason we come to Jesus, are given to Jesus, is because we were gods. We belong to him, which is the opposite of what corporate election says. Here's another one, John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Why do you come? Because the Father has you and is giving you to the Son. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up at the last day. The Father and the Son made a covenant with each other. I will send you into the world, Son. I want you to go and redeem my elect. I have them. When you get there and start obeying and doing what I tell you to do, I'll give them to you. I'm going to give you a bride. And he gives them to the Son. John 10, 25. Are we Jesus' sheep? Because we believe, or are we, or do we believe because we are his sheep? And I'll just say before I read this, this, this is a text that I remember years ago simply stopped my mouth. It just stopped my mouth. It came down to this, either I'm going to believe the Bible and embrace this kind of sovereignty, or, or it's all over. I'm just throwing it away. Because, look, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works. He's talking to the Pharisees. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Now, just let that sink in. It does not say, you are not of my sheep because you do not believe. It does not say, you are not a sheep because you don't believe. It says the reverse. You don't believe because you're not a sheep. And in the Gospel of John, as you read the whole thing, that simply means you're not elect. You're not one of my own. And that's why you don't believe. That's why Judas didn't believe. The Father didn't draw him. That's what he says in John 6, 65. The elect sheep believe, and that's how you know they are elect. Powerful. Is election based on foreknown faith, or is faith the effect of election? Now, I want to be as, as honest with the Arminian argument here as I can be, and, and it's hard, right, when, you, when you've been believing something for 40 years to try to be fair to the view you've rejected for 40 years, but you should make every effort. So if, if any of you thinks I'm being unfair, tweet me. Or, or do something here, or grab me between sessions. I really, really, it just doesn't do any good to shoot down straw men, right? Because you're just going to walk out of here, get a good book on Arminianism, and say, Piper just, he just totally missed the point. He just, he, he was just killing straw men every time, and you don't need to believe anything he says. That's just, I don't want to waste my time doing that. If there's straw men, I'm just not interested in knocking them down. So th there's a really plausible argument here. So here it is. So I'm going to give the plausible argument for Arminius' view. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew. You know, this is their key text. He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Well, there you have it, right? It's a good Arminian text, seemingly. Those whom he foreknew, so he, he, he knows ahead of time something, and then on the basis of that knowing, he predestines. Not the other way around. Like predestined, and then faith. He also predestines to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. <clears throat> what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not with him <coughs> freely give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. So now the question is, what does foreknow or foreknew in verse 29 believe or mean? Go back and see that so you know what the question is. Those whom he foreknew, verse 29 here, he predestined. 
What does for new mean there? Does it mean what the Armenians say? He foresaw their faith, which they decisively brought about, and thus on the basis of foreseeing their free will act of believing, ordained that they be included in the predestined elect, or does it mean something else? That's, that's, if, if you get into an argument with an Armenian over election, that's where they're going to take you, almost certainly, to argue that it's not unconditional. You Calvinists keep using the word unconditional. It's just not unconditional. It's conditional upon foreseen faith, foreknown faith. It says right there in verse 29 of Acts 8, I mean uh, Romans 8. It is possible that it means what the Armenians take it to mean, namely God bases his... Uh, predestination on the self-determined act of faith which he knows they will perform those whom he foreknew he also predestined or here's another alternative foreknew could mean in the Old Testament sense take note of, acknowledge single out for attention choose this may sound unusual to our ears but consider these uses of the word know. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. That means had sex with her. So the word know is chosen as a kind of circumlocution of this intimate act of sexual intercourse, and thus knowing is, uh, is, is more than just knowing about. It's, a, it's an intimate connection with Genesis 18, the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known, that's the literal translation, it's usually translated chosen, probably in your Bible, for I have known him that he may command his children. And almost all the English versions translate known as chosen, elected, chosen for this task. But known is the literal word. I know him, meaning um, the closest, I've, I've tried to ransack the English language thinking, is there any corresponding way we use the word know for choose? And the, the closest I can think of is the cognate word acknowledge, acknowledge. So you're in the, in the Senate, you say, the senator from Minnesota will be acknowledged. Well, what does that mean? It means I choose you to speak now, right? I, that's the closest I can come to the, the way the Hebrew tends to use the word no for, for choosing. But you can, you can see it. It's not as though it's, it's weird. Amos chapter 3, verse 2, you only, Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. What do you mean you only have a known? God knows all the nations. No, he doesn't. Not this way. So this must mean I have set my knowledge on you. I have acknowledged you. I've taken note of you. Something like that in English. Psalm 1-3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. 
The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, what in the world? He knows the way of the righteous. Like what? You don't know what the wicked are doing? No, clearly it doesn't mean that. What does it mean? It's another one of these uses of the word know to mean uh, count as acceptable and precious and, and focused on as giving blessing to. I know the way of the righteous. I'm aware of it and I, I follow it. I fix my eyes on it. I, I take it as mine. I, something like that. So, which meaning does for new have in Romans 8.29? Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn. Does it mean I simply know about ahead of time the fact that they're going to believe with their free will and therefore on the basis of that foreknowledge I now elect them so it's not unconditional, it's conditional. Or does it mean I choose ahead of time? I take note of ahead of time. I acknowledge and make mine and bless ahead of time so that they will believe. Now That's what I think it means. But I don't think it means like, oh, I'd rather believe that, and maybe it's possible it means that, so I choose that. That's, you can't do that. That's not fair. There needs to be some evidence for that meaning in the text, and I think there's really compelling evidence right in the text. So let's look at it and we got two minutes, and um, we'll go just a little over 12, and then you can take the 90 minutes, and uh, we'll be back later. But let's, let's wrap up this particular argument. Ponder the implications. So I'm right here. Ponder the implications of those whom he called, he justified. So those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. That right there is what I'm focusing on. Those whom he justified, he glorified. What, what are the implications of saying those whom he called, he justified? Just think about that. What are the implications of saying those whom he called, he justified? If, if all, the justif all the called are justified, which is what it says, nobody drops out, there are no called who are not justified, right? That's what it that's what he means. All the predestined are called, all the called are justified, all the justified are glorified, and no dropouts. Otherwise, the logic of the whole passage falls apart. So if the called are justified, and if justification is only by faith, Romans 3.28, we believe that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Nobody's justified without faith. Then how is it that all the called and only the called have saving faith. I wonder if you see where this is going. How is that? Because if you say all the called are justified, you must mean all the called come to faith because justification is always by faith. How, how does that happen? How did that come about? I think... The only answer that works is that the call of God 
provides the decisive cause of faith. And this you've got to take home and think about. If that is true, then for new, in verse 29, cannot mean God foreknew which people would provide the decisive cause of their faith. Nobody does. The call of God does. The text itself, the context itself, pictures people being justified who are called, who were predestined. They were predestined, they were called, they were justified, which means there's a little assumed clause in here. They were their faith was secured. Their faith became certain. Their faith was brought about somehow. And we know from other texts, if I got that, that the call of God does in fact produce faith. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 23 to 25. So my answer to the Arminian objection to unconditional election on the basis of Romans 8.29 is that those whom he foreknew he predestined means those whom he chose ahead of time he predestined to be conformed to his son. And I say it not because I, I like that interpretation better and it's possible but rather I say it because it's possible linguistically and verses, verse 30 seemed to me to make it necessary. Because all the called, who are all the predestined, are justified, and they can only, there can only be a correlation between all the called and all the justified if the call effects the necessary prerequisite of justification, namely, namely faith. I think we'll stop there, even though there's more to do, and we'll use the rest of it as a kind of summary before we jump into um, the atonement and, and perseverance. So what we have left to do after lunch is limited atonement, which is the most con controversial one, and um, perseverance, which is the sweetest one, maybe, after irresistible grace. I love ending on it because it's just massive encouragement that he won't let you go. He will not let you go. And, and then we'll close with... Uh, 10 reasons why these things make a big difference in our lives. Let me pray and uh, bless your food. <laughs> you can pray again later if you want. Lord, thank you for the food of your word. We love your word. Where would we be if we couldn't lean on your word to know you and how you work? So cause it to bear fruit now in our lives. Refresh our minds, refresh our bodies in these next 90 minutes, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.